Well, we're a couple weeks in now on a study that we're doing on Christ in the Old Testament, working our way, kind of hop, skipping, and jumping through the Old Testament uh, with eyes uh, looking for Christ, (laughs) which is the only way, as Jesus said to uh, those in in John chapter 5, the only way ultimately to read the Old Testament properly, right? He says, if you would have believed Moses, you'd believe in me because Moses wrote about me. So we cannot then understand Moses or the law and the prophets correctly if we are not seeing Christ. And so we want eyes to see Christ in the Old Testament. Now we do want to guard ourselves in this as we've referenced. We want to guard ourselves from getting silly about it. right? Sometimes there are obvious, very obvious pictures of Christ and we, we see those in some of the figures of the Old Testament, some of the events of the Old Testament. The New Testament itself will often draw these connections for us directly. Jesus, you know, uses the bronze serpent, for example. He says, you know, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and in so doing, he'll draw him. And so he makes that connection. And so there he sort of liberates us to go in and to look at the story of the bronze serpent in a way that helps us to see Christ and look at Christ in a way that helps us to understand what's happening with the bronze serpent. So sometimes it does that. But also, when Jesus does things like that, it also helps give us lenses through which now we can look at many of the stories and see the work of Christ. But maybe more than just looking for particular stories that show us the the work of Christ, again, the the stories of the Old Testament are laying the tracks. They're clearing the ground. They're setting the habits of our thinking and even of our lives, of our own piety, in such a way that when Christ comes, the ground is prepared or should have been prepared. It is to our judgment and to man's judgment that when he comes, we don't recognize him. Or if we do, we crucify him. That's to our you know, to our judgment. But the scriptures of the Old Testament were laying the tracks, the history, the stories, the events, the patterns, the rituals, the cultic life, even the civic life, was laying the groundwork for the coming of Christ. And so we've gone back, and over the past couple weeks, going back to Genesis 1 with God creating light and casting out darkness, creating order and casting out the chaos, filling the emptiness, saw the patterns of Christ. In Genesis 3.15, when the true and utter darkness of sin comes, we see the first radiant, let there be light, if you will, in Genesis 3.15, and even reference the hymn that we just uh, sang uh, at the Lamb's High Feast with the, the clothing of Adam and Eve with the animal skins, so that, if you will, uh, death's dark angel sheathes his sword there, the flaming sword of the garden, because of the, the proper clothing and covering that were covering the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve, and in so doing, prepared our thinking, gave a very, it would have been very hard to understand in the moment what the fullness of this would mean, how we would ultimately be covered, what the seed of the woman is, and what the crushing of the, so all those kinds of things would have been very murky. It's not until Christ that finally the lights come on fully, and we see the implications of this, and the the application of it. But nonetheless, the promise was there, God will provide. God will provide. He's going to restore enmities where they belong, and restore fellowship. And then we thought about the story of Noah. We did it in a little bit of reverse order, but we did think last week about the story of Noah and the coming of new creation and Christ who, if you will, was submerged beneath the flood of God's judgment so that we hidden in him might be brought to a new creation. And also Genesis chapter 12, again, in the calling out of Abram and Abram who leaves his father's house, if you will, so that he might go and be a blessing to the nations. Even Abram himself is a picture, a shadowy picture, a flawed picture 
of Jesus Christ who leaves his father's house that he might go be the blesser of the nations. And we thought about that contrast between Abram and even the Tower of Babel. And today we come to another story of Abram and one that when you hear it, in, as Mark read in Hebrews 7, is one that requires, you know, it almost, you got to get your books out, you got to put your spectacles on, you need to begin to think, because anytime you're reading the book of Hebrews, it requires that kind of effort. But the author of Hebrews is making an argument here that draws on our text this morning. Our text this morning is the back end of, of Genesis uh, 14, verses 18 to 24. This is the story of this character, Melchizedek, who just pops into the story. The story, this, I'll, I'll summarize the story for you here in a second, but in, into a story that Abraham's having just shows up this guy, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought bread and wine. It's like, who's this guy? And what's he doing there? And, and then when you see the behavior of Abram with this man, um, it's, it's even more shocking. Now, it's not shocking to us because we don't know what the heck we're reading. But if, but if you were, if you were you know, Moses' audience reading this, um, you would, you would really be scratching your head. You'd be wondering, who is this guy, and, and why is our father Abraham, who is, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's the top dog, right? He's the one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He's the one that if you bless him, the Lord will bless you, and if you curse him, the Lord will curse you. And here's this guy who is, if you will, on the top of the food chain of blessing, and he's now submitting to this guy, uh, 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 Melchizedek. Who, who is this guy? So Melchizedek pops in. Well, the author of Hebrews draws on this story and makes a pretty complicated argument. Now, I'm not preaching on Hebrews 7 today, so I don't, I don't want to spend too much time there. But you needed to hear it, and you need to go back and reread it, to be honest with you. Uh, you need to think through the, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making because it is a nuanced one. It's a complicated one. It's a legal one in some ways. Now, the whole book of Hebrews... The whole book of Hebrews really is this sermon series that we're doing. The book of Hebrews is basically Christ in the Old Testament. It's basically the Old Testament was shadows and Christ is the reality. Christ is the better Moses. Christ is the better temple. Christ is the better sacrifice. Christ is the better priest. Christ is the ultimate thing. Christ is what all these things were pointing forward to, and he's challenging his Hebrew audience not to make the dumb mistake of looking back. Not to make the dumb mistake of going back and grasping after the shadows as if they're going to be the thing you ultimately need. But we cling to our shadows, you know. They were what we're comfortable with. And so the tendency of these people was to look back. We want our temple. We want our sacrifices. We want our uh, uh, Levitical priesthood to do. We've, we've got thousands of years of tradition here, and we want these things to continue. We feel comfortable there. And the author of Hebrews is saying, smash it all. Smash it all and have Christ. Look to Christ. He is the fulfillment of these things. And so in Hebrews 7, he's making that argument with regards to the priesthood, and he draws in this figure of Melchizedek, who is not mentioned much. We sang about him in Psalm 110. In that psalm, again, David looks forward to the one who's going to be his Lord, his son somehow, but his Lord, and, and yet he's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And again, there's so much murkiness and cloudiness. If we just look at this through Old Testament eyes, we really need Christ to make sense of these things. So let's think about uh, uh, Genesis chapter 14 as we uh, continue this trek of Christ in the Old Testament. So what's happening here? 
Well, in, in chapter 14, uh, Sodom has been attacked by this Ketileomer, this king who with other kings have come and they have, they have conquered uh, Sodom and taken away its people. Now, this bothers Abraham because Lot's in there. And so Lot and his family have been taken captive. You know, Lot should never have left Abram and gone off and settled there, but he did. And now Lot is taken captive by these peoples. The, the king of Sodom, he, he, he's a, a weaselly king. And so when they're attacked, he and the other leaders of Sodom run and hide. And ultimately, his kingdom is overtaken and conquered by these other kings. Well, here's Abram, Abraham, and he's, he's watching this. He sees this all go down, and he's bothered by it. And so he feels the need to do something to go and rescue his family. So he gathers up. He's made some alliances with some of the other kings in, in, the, in the promised land where he is. And so he gathers them up. He gathers 300 men, and he does a night raid of these kings and goes like, like Army Rangers and Navy SEALs does this night attack. We're not told how he does it, but all we know is in the morning he comes out with the men. And the goods, he rescues Sodom's stuff and Sodom's people and brings them back with him. And that's the context that we have in, and you heard uh, Mark reference that in, in Hebrews 7, right at the beginning of that chapter, that Melchizedek appeared after Abraham had defeated these kings. You know, he did. He went in and, and beat up the kings, took back Sodom's stuff, and there he is. And as he arrives back home uh, from battle or his, his raid, his midnight raid, um, we come to verse 18 where Melchizedek, king of Salem, appears. And so in our text, and I'll read it here in a second, we really have Abram facing two kings. We'll see he's going to deal with Melchizedek, king of Salem, and then the king of Sodom is going to come up and try to work out some negotiation to get his stuff back the stuff that he didn't defend that was taken by these kings, but now which Abram went and rescued back for himself. Now Abraham has his stuff, and the king of Sodom is going to come and try to, to make some deal with him. So that's the context and what we've got here. So Genesis 14, verses 18 through 24. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High, of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be god most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tithe of all that is abram gave melchizedek a tithe of all now the king of sodom said to abram give me the persons and take the goods for yourself but abram said to the king of sodom i have raised my hand to the lord god most high the possessor of heaven and earth that i will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So here we've got Abram, and he comes back from battle, and he has these encounters with the two kings, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom. Now I want us to think for a moment about Abram. We're told, let's remember who Abram is, right? Abram is the man who's called out of his land, again, to leave his, his homeland and to go into the promised land that the Lord will give him. And the Lord said, you'll remember that Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great name, right? Everything those they wanted at the Tower of Babel, here uh, the Lord says he's going to give to Abram. 
But what was important for us in that discussion was that it was going to be through Abraham that all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. Abram, I'm going to bless you, but I'm blessing you so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we'll also remember that when the Lord said that to Abram, we acknowledge on that day that this puts a big fat question mark over the rest of Israel's history. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament. Because Abram and his descendants, we know, exist that through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But the big fat question mark over it is how? How are you going to bless the nations through Abraham and his seed? And again, the Jews may very well have thought that it was going to be by their exaltation and by their exaltation, just this, this cascading effect of glory and blessing that was going to ripple down to the nations. But if they thought that, they would be missing the, the, the big problem of the Old Testament, the big problem of the world, and that is sin. How do you bless sinful nations? All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abram. But how do you bless nations that deserve to be cursed? Just, just glory it out of the way? I mean, again, Israel gets exalted and somehow all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's this big question mark hanging over the entire Old Testament. Like, how is that ultimate promise going to be fulfilled? And we know, again, but only when we see the lights, when the lights finally and fully come on in Jesus Christ, do we say, oh... Yeah, now I see how in the seed of Abram, the sins of the nations are going to be dealt with so that now they can all be blessed. And praise God, we're on that place where after the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the commission goes to go. We're going to hear from our brother Steve today about how people are being blessed in India, right? Through the gospel, all the nations of the earth are being blessed because of this seed of Abraham. But it's not until Christ that we really get a sense of this. Now, we're not to Christ yet. We're just in chapter 14. We kind of jumped ahead to see it when we were dealing with, uh, with Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis chapter 14, we still got the big question mark hanging over our head. And Abram knows that he himself has been ordained by God to be the blesser of the nations. Well, we're going to see him, in some sense, doing this in our text, the context of our text in chapter 14. We see him acting in a royal way. Abram takes on like a Davidic frame here, right? Abram is going to be the hero, the, the, the conquering David figure, right? He gathers up a bunch of men and says, hey, they've taken these people hostage. We're going to go do something about this militarily. Like we're going to actually pick up weapons and we're going to go deliver them. I mean, it's a very royal thing to do, right? He actually works out a deal with these other kings, gets 300 guys, they're well-trained, and off he goes. And it's, it, we don't have a king here yet, but it's a shadowy king. It's, it's, it's David doing a royal action. It's what kings do. They conquer, they defeat, they deliver, they protect. Abram is acting very Davidic-like. And off he goes, right, to deliver uh, a Lot and his family and, and defeats them and actually rescues, of all things, Sodom's stuff. And gives it back. Says, I'm not taking anything. I'm not taking anything. I'm not making any deals with you. I'm not making any deals with the nations, right? Just like we thought about in First Peter. I know where my inheritance comes from. And so I'm not making any deals with the nations. This is very important for Israel to learn, right? Don't make deals with the nations. You don't need Sodom. Your wealth is not going to come because you're making some negotiation with the king of Sodom of all people. David says, I, it's, I'm never going to let you say you made me rich. 
I know who makes me rich in here. He gives his stuff back. So again, very royal. So Abram then, in this Davidic way, gives it all back. We'll also see, though we're not there yet, but we read it for, that's why I did the switch, the late, the late minute, uh, last minute audible on the Old Testament reading, was because I wanted us to see Abram's priestly role. Right? Abram, Abram knows, and he's called to bless the nations. So we've seen him in this battle here actually bless Sodom by going and getting their stuff back and rescue Lot and his family. Right? He's, he's acting as a king in this way and being a blessing giver. But also in the text we read in our Old Testament, we see him in a priestly role trying to do this. He gets the word, the Lord says, you know what, I'm not going to, since Abram is the one who's going to inherit the nations, since Abram is the one who's going to bless all nations, I really better bring him into the loop here. And so the Lord says to Abram, hey, listen, I need to, I want to let you know something here. I'm going to destroy Sodom. Now, now Abram has, in, in our text, gone and delivered their stuff and, and rescued many of these people and, and given them back to the king of Sodom and lots living there. And the Lord comes and says, I'm going to destroy them because of their sin. And Abram steps up now, not as a king, but as a priest. And he intercedes. He begins to pray for them and starts negotiating with the Lord as a mediator. Right? Even we, 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 we can think of others in, in the scriptures who do this. Think of Moses who on top of Mount Sinai when God says, I'm going to destroy the people. And Moses steps up and he says, take me. Take me. Like, uh, let's work a deal, right? And Moses becomes the priest who tries to intercede on behalf of the people. And the Lord honors Moses, though his, his mediation is insufficient. He can't take the place. And here we have Abram doing this, acting as a priest and jumping into the place and saying, okay, hey, well, but wait a second, this doesn't sound like you, Lord. What if there's 50 righteous people in there? I, I, I know you better than that. I know you're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. So would you spare the city if there were 50 in there? And the Lord heeds the intercession of Abram and says, fine, I won't. But I think Abram fears there may not be 50. <laughs> there may not be 50 righteous in there. So maybe while I've got, while I got your ear, I know I love it because he says, I know I'm just dust and ashes. I, I, I shouldn't even be having this conversation with you. But he says, if you don't mind if I ask if there were five less, I know if you're going to do it at 50. It's a wonderful conversation. We actually read two wonderful conversations. I love that conversation where they says, why is Sarah laughing? And Sarah says, I'm not laughing. And he says, no, you were laughing. I just love the fact that the Lord does that to Sarah. And no, you were. Um, that was a wonderful conversation. But this is also a wonderful conversation because Abram's just saying, but I... If there were, so if you'll do it for 50, I know for five you wouldn't do it. So would you do it for 45? And fine, I won't. <laughs> and then you know how it goes. And okay, well, okay, but what about 40? And, and the Lord is patient with, with Abram and works him down. He says, fine, I wouldn't do it if there were 10. Now, we don't hear any more of the conversation, but it might have continued on. And perhaps it continued down to one. If there was even one righteous person there, will you spare them? And you could hear the Lord saying, fine, Abram, fine. At least he stops at 10 and says, okay, I'll do it. But you also know the rest of the story. And you know that eventually the Lord does destroy Sodom. And so it seems to me like we have to assume then there is none righteous in Sodom. And this will not surprise us 
you know, Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. So, so nice try, Abram. It was a really great negotiation. And you have, the, you have the ear of the Lord, and the Lord was willing to hear your intercession. But at the end of the day, there's none righteous. And so the judgment comes down. Now, we see in Abram here then these two facets of Abram's small r royal action of going and doing the delivering and the conquering and the, the, the giving back of these people to Sodom, rescuing, if you will, Sodom. And on the other hand, his priestly work of interceding on behalf of the nations, Dave, or Abram, like a, like a royal priest himself. And yet ultimately, at the end of the day, Sodom's destroyed. All of his royal efforts, what do they secure? Lot, we know his story, it falls apart, it's a disaster. Sodom is ultimately destroyed. A Abram's priestly role, he intercedes, but at the end of the day, he can't get it done. The Lord hears him, but the kind of priest that he is, he doesn't have the power to effect anything. He, th there's none righteous and there's nothing he can do about it. He just asks, if there's anyone righteous, would you spare him? Yes, I will, but there's not, so they're getting destroyed. Abram's the blesser of the nations, but yet at the end of the day, even his blessing of the nations doesn't finally get it done. There's going to, if the nations in fact are going to be blessed, it's going to require something much greater. It's going to require a different kind of king. It's going to require a different kind of priest. And then in our text, in pops this guy, Melchizedek. In the middle of a story in which we really have a, a very nice but insufficient king and a real nice and sincere but insufficient priest in pops a guy named Melchizedek who is a royal priest whose name means king of righteousness that's what Melchizedek means and he's the king of Salem and Salem means peace and the author of Hebrews picks this up that here's this one who is this royal figure he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and, we're told, who is priest of God Most High. So he's a royal. He's a royal priest. And he comes to Abram, who is the one, as we said, who's at the top of the chain of blessing. He's the one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, but already we've seen his ability to do it to be pretty limited. And if we know the rest of the story of his descendants and his people, my goodness, it's unbelievably limited and flawed and failed. And you wonder if it's ever going to get done. And it's most likely not going to get done were it not for somebody in the line of this figure. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace and the priest of God most high. And it's in him that we begin to get a hint, or at least the groundwork is laid for us to know that ultimately Abram's line, as much as the Lord is going to bless the nations through Abram, that at the end of the day, it's going to require somebody above Abram. The Israelites would be shocked at this story because, again, Abram's the top dog, yet in this story, Abram is giving a tithe to this priest. Abram is acknowledging that this king and this priest is above Abram him and he receives a blessing from him as the author of hebrews says the lesser doesn't bless the greater the greater blesses the lesser the, the the greater doesn't give ties to the lesser the lesser gives ties to the greater and yet these are reversed from what israel would have thought would happen abram is again the top dog the one through whom everybody's going to be blessed yet he comes and receives blessing 
from this one Melchizedek. And in turn, he gives tithes back to this priest. So who is this guy? Who is this king of righteousness and king of peace? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us. They tell us that this one is, this, is the picture, if you will, or the shadow of the one Jesus Christ, who is the royal priest, right? The one who is going to come and do what Abram couldn't do, and even what David couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do. He's the one who's really going to rescue us. Not in a temporary rescuing, not in a rescuing that's ultimately going to lead to our destruction a few pages later, but one who's actually going to come and do a real rescue. We need a king. And hence God gave us Abram. But in the end, Abram himself will be insufficient. We're going to need a king who's going to come and really deliver. And this king, at least a picture of this king, a forerunner of this king, shows up to Abram in this story as Melchizedek, a true king of righteousness and a king who can actually bring and secure peace. We need such a king. But we also need a priest. We need a priest who can truly intercede for us. And not just intercede for us like if there's someone righteous, but who can actually affect our peace. Abram could pray and say, look, if I can find a righteous guy in there, will you spare them? And God says, sure, but there's none righteous. No, not one. And what we ultimately need then is the priest of the God Most High who is the king of righteousness. Again, go back to Moses' mediation on top of Mount Sinai. <laughs> Moses says, take me. God says, I, I can't take you. But fine, I won't kill them all now. He gives right just like with Abram, sort of a, a temporary, a temporary uh, reprieve. Israel's all going to die in the wilderness, but not now. He does heed the intercession of his small p priest. But ultimately, Moses can't secure their true peace. He tries, take me, spare them. God says, I'm not doing it. It's not a fair trade. But you deserve to die too, no offense. So I love you, Moses, and I'll heed you, but you, it's not a fair trade. You, you can't stand in for them. Abram can try to secure their peace, but there's, there's nothing to do. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But Melchizedek points us to the ultimate priest, the one who can intercede on behalf of a simple, simple people and say, look, if we can find one righteous human being, will you spare them? And the father says, sure, for one I'll spare them. And Jesus can say, then take me. Then take me. Spare them. Here's the righteous one. Here's the righteous. I is the one righteous one. We'll do what Moses tried to do but couldn't do. As, as, as our Melchizedek, as our king of righteousness, he can stand in and say, spare Sodom. Take me. And the father receives Christ and brings the wrath of Sodom down upon his only begotten son that out the other side, Sodom might be spared of all places. That you and I might be spared because the king of righteousness, the great priest of God most high, comes and actually blesses nations. 
Now, the people of Israel, you know, the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7, they get all thrown off by this because the minute the author of Hebrews starts talking about Christ as a priest, the great high priest who intercedes, they're all thrown, no, 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 we get it how he can be a king, but he can't be a priest, they say, because the priest is not from the tribe of Judah, the priest is from the tribe of Levi, and this is the complicated argument that he's making. It takes you to come back at it again. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, no, the priests of, of Aaron the priests of Levi were always only shadows. This story in Genesis 14, what it basically does is stamp an expiration date on the priesthood of Abram. It stamps an expiration date on all the priests that would flow from the loins of Abram. Like at the end of the day, you can't get it done and you will bow before the royal priest of Melchizedek. This story tells us that the line of Abram was never the final thing. It was never the priesthood that was going to get it done. That you were going to have to bow and pay tithes to this one. And if you're going to be blessed, and if you're going to be the blesser of nations, it's only going to come through the royal priesthood of this one. And so to get hung up on, well, he's not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, the author of Hebrews says, no, you know what? He's from the line of Melchizedek. He's from the royal line. He is the king of kings. He is the priest of priests. He's the one who gives himself up for the nations so that they might be spared. He is the one who finally and fully defeats their enemies so that there is no more destruction to come. This is the good news of what your royal priest has done. He has defeated your enemies once and for all. He has satisfied the wrath of God for you once and for all so that now between you and God there is nothing but peace. No more wrath. Everything now, we've talked about this before, everything now you experience in Jesus Christ is only ever blessing. All wrath has been extinguished because he has borne the fire for you. He's taken the wrath of judgment and death's dark angel, as we sang in that hymn, now sheathes its sword. Our king of priests comes, and he comes to bless. And it's interesting that in this story, he comes and he brings wine and bread. Now, again, it just meant he prepared a meal for him. But once we, once we come and we see the light of Jesus Christ, and we say, okay, a, a royal priest who comes and presents us with bread and wine, the pictures and the lights and the, red, the sirens all start going off for us about our, our Christ who comes not to negotiate like the king of Sodom, but who comes and just blesses. He comes and lays a meal before Abram, and he comes and blesses him in this great benediction and this blessing. And Abram, having enjoyed this meal with Melchizedek, and Abram having received the blessing and giving the tithes, when the king of Sodom comes and tries to negotiate some measly little deal for the riches of Sodom, Oh, Abraham is so full already now with the riches of Melchizedek that he is able and refreshed to say, get out of here, get out of here. Take your goods, take your people and go. Just make sure my guys get paid. That's all he says. Make sure my, make sure my guys get paid. But besides that, get out of here. I'm not going to have it ever be said that you're the one who made me rich. In our word of exhortation today, Peter challenged that. Make sure you know who's made you rich. Make sure you know where your inheritance lies. Right? Make sure you know where to look for your intercession. Know where to look for your victory. Know where to look for your blessing. 
because the murkiness of this world and the trials and tribulations and the circumstances that we go through makes us make deals with Sodom. But if you spend enough time with Melchizedek, if you, eat, if you have eaten at the table with Melchizedek, if you've received the blessing of Melchizedek, that the God of heaven and earth, the possessor of the nations, blesses you, if you've received that, then what, do, what need do you have? What want do you have? What, what desire do you have that will not be fulfilled in him? So brothers and sisters, may we look to our king of righteousness. May we look to our king of peace and be filled so that the cares of this world, the offerings of this world, have no bearing upon our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our king of righteousness. Lord, we thank you for Abram, but in all his insufficiencies, he prepared the way and pointed the way to the greater king, to the greater priest, even our greater Melchizedek, Jesus Christ our Lord, who secures our peace and gives us his righteousness who intercedes but stands in and affects the thing he prays for, who accomplishes the very peace he prays for by giving us his righteousness and bearing our judgment for us. So we rejoice in him. Keep our eyes fixed upon him, we pray, as we seek to run our race with endurance. Lest we grow weary, lest our eyes be lowered from him and begin to entertain the offerings of the world that surrounds us. Fix us on him, we pray. Amen.